You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. It's been a couple of weeks now that we were in John chapter 15 um, as we took a a break, obviously, last week while I was out. And then two weeks ago, we talked heavily about our uh, approach to 2020 and the goals that we wanted to set individually for this year for our own personal growth. And so I guess it was three weeks ago that we were in uh, John chapter 15, talking specifically about uh, that analogy that Jesus shares as the the vine and the branches and the fruit that we're called to produce um, as Christians as we seek to abide in him. Um, and, and we said specifically that uh, when we do that, when we seek to abide in him and produce the fruit that he's called us to produce, that it, it leads to a fullness of joy, right? And we said that true Christians abide in Christ by knowing and responding to his word, which allows them to produce increasing fruit and experience lasting joy. And so we had wrapped up that sermon uh, talking specifically about um, how do we know if we're abiding in Jesus, right? And so I told you that we have to look and see, do we, do we see fruit in our life? Is there a change that's occurring in who we are and how we interact with the world around us? Is there pruning that's taking place in our life? Can we, can we look and see that uh, God is cutting away certain things from our life and, and um, uh, bringing trials and challenges and difficulties that allows for greater fruit to be produced in our life? Um, do we witness answered prayers? Because we're told that, that answered prayers will be a result of abiding in him. Do we have a desire to serve others? Is there a growing love for the, the local church that you're a part of? And then lastly, do we experience joy? Is there a peace and a hope uh, despite difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in? Because these are all indicators uh, in John chapter 15 that we are truly abiding in Christ if we're seeing these type of things in our life. And so that brings us to the second part of John chapter 15 in verse 18. And I want to read for us there our text this morning. Um, And we'll go into chapter 16, verse 4. It says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Our summary sentence for today is that Jesus warns his followers that the world will respond to their love, obedience, and resulting joy with hatred. With that hatred being extreme at times. And he challenges his followers to endure the hatred rather than fall away because of it. 
Jesus warns his followers that the world will respond to their love, obedience, and resulting joy. Those are the things that that we see in the first part of this passage, that he's calling us to abide in him, right? And to, to love him, to be obedient to him, and to experience joy as a result of all that. Jesus tells his followers, the world's gonna respond to your love, obedience, and the resulting joy with hatred. And at times that hatred's going to be extreme. But he challenges his followers to endure the hatred rather than fall away because of it. For our kids, Jesus tells us that if we follow him, we will be hated by a lot of people. But it's okay because a lot of people hated Jesus too. This passage continues a theme that we've seen over the last couple of chapters where Jesus is addressing um, the expectations and the duties for following him in a fallen world without him being physically present. Remember, he's about to leave and his disciples have been used to following him physically in this world. And so things are about to shift and change. And so he is clarifying What does it look like now to follow me when I'm not here? What what, what things should we expect? What duties are we to perform? How are we to carry out our faith? And so he's laying the groundwork for what church life is going to be, right? That instead of being with him, they are now going to gather in their smaller groups, in, in local bodies to worship and to follow and to hold each other accountable and to spur each other on to good works. And so he is laying a early foundation for what church life is supposed to look like, this idea of abiding in him and loving each other and being obedient and experiencing joy. But he lets them know in the midst of all this that there's going to be hatred that follows. So going back to what we've said over the past couple of weeks, he tells them to not be troubled, to abide in him, to love each other. And if you do all those things well, you're gonna be hated for it, right? So that there's no false expectation for Uh, some type of uh, prosperity or benefit that will come from all this, Jesus warns them and says, if you do all these things I'm instructing you to do, there's a really good chance that you're going to be hated and persecuted for doing so. Because of that, the passage gives us reason to pause regarding two things. Um, One, it gives us reason to pause at the message of the prosperity gospel. What does the prosperity gospel teach? Well, it teaches that that if you follow Jesus well, if you do the things that he's called you to do, that that life will go well for you, right? Whether that's from a physical health standpoint, whether that's from a bank account standpoint, the expectation that the prosperity gospel builds amongst those who are listening to it is that if I do what the preacher's telling me to do, then life will turn out good for me, right? Um, And that's not always the case, right? The problem with the prosperity gospel and the thing that makes it so appealing is that there is truth mixed with error in the midst of it, right? Because a lot of the things that they claim are things that occur sometimes, right? Think about it. Some of the messages that we might hear um, within the prosperity gospel is that if you have a healthy spiritual life, that you will have a healthy physical life. Well, that principle is found in Scripture, right? That, that if we are following God and we are being obedient to Him, that there, there, there could be the result of long life here on the earth, right? So the truth there is that sometimes that does occur, that healthy spiritual life leads to healthy physical life, that, that God works miraculous healings is, is a strong message within the prosperity gospel. And, and that's certainly true as well, that at times God does heal miraculously, 
right? Um, that attention to scriptural principles will aid in one's um, prosperity financially. Well, that's true as well at times, that if we follow the wisdom of scripture, that oftentimes it will translate into uh, better job situations, promotions that will inevitably lead to uh, bigger bank accounts. The message that the righteous life uh, allows us to avoid obstacles in life. Well, that too at times is true, right? Because we're going to avoid the discipline of God. We are going to avoid the natural consequences of sin. If we are not sowing to our flesh, then we shouldn't be reaping to the flesh as well, right? So the problem with the prosperity gospel is that there is truth mixed with error because the things that they say, they encourage their, belie- their, their, their uh, hearers to believe as an all-the-time expectation, right? Whereas scripture would not lend us to see that. Instead, scripture would say these things happen at times, but what we also see in scripture is that godly believers aren't always wealthy. They're not always healthy. Sometimes they have physical difficulties. Sometimes they suffer, and sometimes they are persecuted, right? And so that's where we have to pause when we hear a message of prosperity and say, sometimes that is true, but a lot of times it is not. A lot of times that is not how God chooses to carry things out in our life. We had the chance, a couple of us had the chance to go to uh, the steak dinner over at Woolsey last night, and Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Seminary, was speaking on Romans 12, 1 and 2, and one of the things that he talked about was uh, a lot of times people say that the safest place to be is in the middle of God's will. If you can be in the center of God's will, that's the safest place to be, and he said he's always wrestled with that because he reads passages like what we're seeing today, and it doesn't sound very safe, right? Like Jesus is saying, there's a good chance you're going to die if you're committed to following me. And so he said, what, what we really see is that being in the center of God's will is the best place to be, not always the safest place to be if we're thinking in terms of earthly definitions of safe, but it's always the best place to be, even if it results in persecution, suffering, and death, right? So It gives us reason to pause at the prosperity gospel, but it also gives us reason to pause at our own lack of persecution, right? Because this is a passage that oftentimes, if we're not careful, will create a lot of tension in our hearts and and create potentially even guilt within us as we hear accounts, we hear stories of other believers who are enduring far greater persecution than we could ever fathom where we live right now. Right? And there, there's a tendency to, to almost feel guilty or, or to maybe dive into an uh, over-self-examination as to why is my life not resulting in the same experiences that, that I hear about around the world. Well, it is important for us to think through just a, a clear understanding of what persecution even means. Right, Persecution is not always violent. It's not always constant. And not all unbelievers hate Christians. Right? Because if we're using Jesus' life as a model for even understanding this, because he says, hey, they've hated me, they're going to hate you as well. Well, let's just kind of think through, well, what does Jesus' life look like? A lot of times it was simply verbal rejection of the things that he was saying to others in a crowd, right? As he's sharing his faith and, and, and the gospel and truth from his father, there's, there's verbal rejection doesn't result in violence, doesn't result in beatings, doesn't result in stonings, doesn't result in death, but does result in conflict. There's rejection, right? There's even rejection within his family, 
right? Like some ostracizing within his family where, where his brothers don't really appreciate him, don't really want anything to do with him. They're, they're uh, potentially convicted, and, and instead of responding with repentance, they respond with rejection, right? So it's important for us to note that, that persecution is not always what we think of from the extreme standpoint, that persecution has to mean you're in jail, on death row, about to die and have your head cut off, right? That's not what persecution always means. Um, this group down here, Dallas, maybe you can remember the wording that you were using, because I think, I think what you said was helpful in, in even understanding persecution. Can you kind of relay that again? Sorry, sorry to put you on the spot there, but I, I really thought like you kind of hit it. Um, I was saying that persecution is really just any time that somebody uh, wants to stop you from believing or acting in your belief of whatever you believe in, um, whether that be through like social pressure, whether that be through physical persecution, um, it's just, it is an opposition to what you believe in an attempt to get you to stop practicing it. Yeah, and I think that's a great picture of what persecution is. Now, we in, in our culture typically only use the word persecution when we think of extreme measures, right? And we almost feel guilty for saying, I was persecuted today because I got some kickback at a conversation at the water cooler at work today, right? It's like, bro, you were not persecuted today. Like, there were people that died for their faith today, right? But technically, like the pushback, the opposition, the, the discouragement towards our faith falls into this category, right? It's not always violent. It's not always constant. And not every unbeliever that you come in contact with is going to hate you because that's also the truth for Christ. Now, we see even greater levels of persecution even, even around here in our area, right? It was a year or two ago, maybe two years ago, where the head coach for East Coweta tried to, to lead his football team in prayer and had been leading his football team in prayer, I think. Maybe you can clarify, Bobby, after football games. And then this organization kind of stepped in and applied pressure and said, we're not going to do that anymore. Like, you're not allowed to do that anymore in a public institution. You can't pray with your team after a football game. Right? And so we see organizations that'll come in and like try to put an end to those type activities, whereas other schools are getting away with it until somebody decides we don't want this anymore. They can. But organizations come in with a level of hatred, like Jesus talks about, and says they will hate you for the things that you're doing. Right? And they will push back and try to end it. Um, Obviously, in public schools, you know, teachers aren't permitted to share the gospel, to pray, to express their faith. Some get away with it better than others. But as a general rule, we kind of think and understand that, hey, those things are off limits in a public school institution. Um, we are starting to experience more and more kickback for our views about which lifestyles are appropriate or not, right? Um, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to expression of love, when it comes to expression of gender, right? As Christians, we stand up and say, here's what the Bible says, and we're experiencing more and more kickback for that. It, it, it's hard, though, to read a passage like this and not feel like there's a missing element because we know persecution is so much greater in other areas of the world, right? We're at Disney this week. Uh, Ryan and I are in line with, we were responsible for like 11 boys that we just toted around every park in Orlando, right? And um, we're standing in line, and, and we were in one, line for one roller coaster for like two plus hours, and, and me and Ryan are just like, this is awful. Like, and we know it's going to be two hours because our app on our phone is telling us 
you're not going anywhere for two plus hours. And it's like, there's no hope of getting out of this line. And we're kind of grumbling about it. And, and I'm already thinking about this passage. You know, and I kind of looked at Ryan and I was like, but think about what our day is today. Like we're standing in line for roller coasters and uh, engineer entertainment while other people aren't going to live through their day today. They're, they're going to die for their faith today. And so it kind of puts things in perspective, and I, I just kind of kept throwing that out there. And then we get to Star Wars land, Galaxy's Edge, and we're about to ride the Millennium Falcon, and we're just like, yeah! And then I looked at him, and i like, but not everybody's making it through today, right? Like, like it's just, it's just, there's just this pressing, like, tension inside of me as I read this passage, and I know there's Christians dying for their faith today, and I'm riding on a fake spaceship, pretending like I'm in outer space, jumping to light speed, right? And there's this tension, it's like, what am I supposed to be doing with that, right? Like, what am I supposed to be doing knowing that Christians are suffering today and I'm, I'm not, right? Like, I'm in line for two hours, but it's hard for me to say that I'm suffering today when I know what's occurring elsewhere. I think we have to realize, and this is a longer introduction than normal, I think we have to, to realize the unique setting that we live in and not necessarily feel guilty for it, right? Um, our, our country, our nation was founded... Uh, at least in part, by people who were fleeing from the lack of being able to express themselves religiously, right? So we'll read a passage where Jesus talks about that being a natural consequence of persecution where his disciples will have to spread out, right? And we can be extremely grateful that some of our ancestors left where they were and came here, not so we can ride roller coasters and not be persecuted, but because there were people that were here that needed to hear the gospel, Right, that weren't even on people's radar until they got here and realized there's a bunch of natives here that have never heard about Jesus. Right? But we've got people who came here to establish a new way of life that was different than anything else that was being experienced um, on the other side of the world. Right? And, and, and when they established this life, there's one of my favorite things at Disney, and it's one of the few things that I remember from my personal eighth grade trip when I was a kid, is the Hall of Presidents at Magic Kingdom. Right? Like it's, it's this really cool educational thing that most everybody just wants to ride roller coasters. And I told my teachers, you can have Friday off the next day when we got back, but you have to take your group to the Hall of Presidents because I don't want anybody to miss this. Because it's such a cool documentary on the uniqueness of the presidency in the United States. Completely different than any of, anything else happening in the world at that time. Power was seized whether you were a dictator, a military general, or whether you were born into it as a monarch, right? Like you, you didn't lose power as a family typically unless you were overthrown. You didn't lose power as a dictator unless you were overthrown. And here we have George Washington, our general who, who defeats England, who willfully says, I'm gonna give the power back, right? And there's this, this form of government that's established that, that protects us from violent leaders, who would impose their own viewpoints unchecked and unbalanced, right? So we have to realize that we live in a unique setting where we are encouraged and, and allowed to express ourselves religiously for the most part, right? And so it therefore concludes that we're probably not ever going to experience what is being experienced around the world until some of that starts to change, right? I was thinking this, this week that maybe it's similar to what the remnant in Old Testament Israel maybe felt in the midst of being in a culture where it was, it was acceptable to worship Yahweh. They were choosing to worship him differently. They're worshiping him at the high places. They're making graven images out of him. But probably for long stretches of time, you could have been a God-fearer, a Yahweh follower, 
doing it the right way in Israel and probably not experienced persecution because you were living in a culture in a setting where that was overall acceptable, right? It's overall acceptable, especially in this area of the United States that we live, to call yourself a Christian, to claim to love God. It's only when you really start to do those things that you start to get a little bit of kickback, okay? So I think it's helpful for us to recognize we are in a unique setting, a setting that I think we can be very thankful for, one that we don't necessarily have to feel guilty of, but it should cause us reason to pause and say, am I doing things the way that I should be? And is my lack of persecution because I'm not, right? But here's where I would say we're not ending up in jail, being killed for our faith, because there are so many solid, faithful Christians that are light years ahead of my own faithfulness that also aren't experiencing that here in the U.S., right? And so we're just not in a setting where that's going to happen until some things at the top really start to change. Now, I would say, this will be, my, I think, my last Disney illustration, I would say that we're, we're trending towards that direction where things are going to start to change. Um, there was this message that Ryan and I picked up on when we went into Tomorrowland at Magic Kingdom, right? It's supposed to be the, the future, this is what's coming, Space Mountain, all this kind of stuff, right? You go into the gift shops in Tomorrowland, and there is a unique message, I believe, being preached in those gift shops that you don't witness in some of the other gift shops. And that's the unbelievable infiltration of anything and everything being covered in the rainbow. Like, there was a distinct difference in Tomorrowland's gift shop as to the pitch for homosexuality being acceptable than in any other of the gift shops that we went to. And I think there's a subtle message of, this is what tomorrow looks like. This is the norm for what's coming for tomorrow. And there will be the potential for hatred to be shown, and it may not escalate to the point where we have to worry about our life before we actually die. Maybe that comes for our kids or our grandkids down the road. But we are trending towards greater opportunities for us to have to take a stand and be willing to be hated for that stand potentially if we want to identify with Christ appropriately, right? We're in a unique setting right now where the hostility that we hear about in other parts of the world is not going to happen right now. But we are trending towards that direction where more opportunities will come for us to either align with Christ and be hated for it or to shrink back and conform to the things of this world. And we're going to have to make decisions as we continue to get older and as we continue to progress as a nation. All right. Um, big, long introduction. Let's get into our text. Number one, we should expect persecution because it makes sense. We should expect persecution because it makes sense. For our kids, the world will hate Christians because they follow Jesus. Now, it only makes sense if we really understand what Jesus is saying here, because I think, one, I think somebody was saying in this group up here, well, you would expect if you do the things that Jesus tells you to do that you'll, you'll benefit from it, you'll be blessed for it, you'll be taken care of for it, you won't, you won't experience these things that Jesus is talking about. In our, in our flesh, in our natural minds, that's what makes sense, that we would sow right decisions and reap the benefits. But Jesus warns his disciples and helps them understand what really makes sense is that we would experience what he experienced, right? 
that, that he comes and in his life, he models expectations for what we should expect for our own life in the ways that the world treated him. Expect persecution because it makes sense. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He says in verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Number one here, the reason that it makes sense is because we identify with Jesus. If we're Christians seeking to be faithful, we are identifying with Jesus in our service and the world hated him. We are choosing to align ourselves with somebody that the world did everything it could to kill off, right? The world said, we don't like your teaching. We don't like the things that you have to say. We don't like the things that you do. We're going to kill you. We're going to get rid of you. And then we come behind them and say, we like them. We love him. We want to do everything that he said, right? Like we want to adhere ourselves to his teaching. Can you imagine somebody coming, and people do, but coming behind dictators that have fallen, dictators that have been defeated, and saying, you know what? I like that teaching. I want that teaching. I want to reinvigorate that teaching today. Right? Like we would look at them and say, that stuff's evil. That stuff's bad. Like, like we don't want that around again. We, we went into those nations and defeated those people to put an end to it right? Now we would say we should have because there was evil there. But the world says we did that because we believe Jesus is evil, right? The, the religious leaders said you are Satan, right? The things that you say are blasphemous. They are not true. So in their minds, Jesus is the evil dictator that needs to be dethroned, right? And then we're coming behind and saying, we love Jesus. We want Jesus to come back. We want Jesus to rule and reign. So we should expect the world to hate us because we are championing. We are, we are wanting to follow an individual that the world wanted to get rid of. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know it hated me before it hated you. We identify with Jesus. We're going to be hated because the world hated him. Number two, we have been chosen out of the world to be different than the world. We've been chosen out of the world to be different than the world. He says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We're not of the world. Because we don't conform to it, we are hated by it. It's offensive to the world to be called out of it and to leave it behind. It convicts us. It convicts the world. But just like the, the, the religious leaders, instead of responding in their conviction with repentance, they respond with rejection, right? So, the world witnesses us being called out and we start making decisions to do things differently. And the world says, we don't like that. Like We want you to conform. We want you to do it the way that we do it. You're offending me by doing things differently. Why do you have to change things? Why do you have to do it differently? This is what everybody else is doing. Why does it have to be different, right? And Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about us being transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we don't conform to this world. Right, so that we do things differently, so that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. We're different in what our life produces. Right, Going back to what John 15 says at the beginning of the passage, 
beginning of this chapter, we're part, of, we're part of branches that are tied into this unique vine where we're producing a totally different kind of fruit than what the world's producing, right? We're different in what our life is about now, and that stands out to others. You know, George Washington Carver has a quote that says, when you start to do common things in an uncommon way, you demand the attention of the world, right? When you do common things in an uncommon way, you demand the attention of the world. And sometimes that might be negative attention, right? When you start to live out your faith in an uncommon way, especially in a culture where it's very common to claim to be a Christian, but you actually start to live it out in a way that's uncommon with everybody else claiming to be a Christian, you will demand the attention of the world and most likely in a negative way, in a negative way. You start to stand out, you start to do things differently and you start to offend people. We've been chosen out of the world to be different than the world. You ever get back, for those of you that... uh, work outside the home, you get back from like New Year's and you go back to work and maybe you've had patterns of, of who you eat lunch with and what you eat lunch and then you get back and you find out people have started new diets and stuff and you're just like, why you gotta go and change things, right? Like, like this is the day that we go and eat at the pizza buffet and now you're not gonna go with me anymore and, and now you're saying like we gotta eat healthier and like there's this, there's this thing inside of you because you haven't been thinking that way and you're not ready to start a diet and you're just like, I know you're right, but I, I really hate you for it, right? Like, like you're wanting to do things differently than we've been doing them, and, and that, that stinks because I really enjoyed you doing it with me, right? Like, and it's, it's more fun to go to the pizza buffet with a group of friends versus by yourself, right? That, that's a small-scale illustration of, like, what this looks like when we get called out of the world and we start to do things differently than we used to do them with people that we associate with. There, there's a probably a deep admittance inside of them that says, you're right. I just don't want to do it because I'm not, my, my thinking hasn't been trending that way. Right? That wasn't on my radar to start doing things that way. And so there's a rejection instead of what's being presented. We've been chosen out of the world to be different than the world. So it makes sense that the world would hate us. Number three, we aren't exempt from mistreatment because we aren't greater than Jesus. We aren't exempt from mistreatment because we aren't greater than Jesus. Right? He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. So because we're not greater than Jesus, we should fully expect to oftentimes be treated just like he was treated. He uses this greater to lesser argument. If it's true for the greater, it's also going to be true for the lesser, and we are certainly the lesser. He was persecuted, so we will be too. But what's encouraging here, he kind of throws this, this bit of encouragement in here at the end of that verse. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Well, what's he saying there? He's saying that we aren't devoid of acceptance because not everyone hated Jesus. So he's, he's, he's showing that there's two groups here, right? There's, there's the group that persecutes and hates the disciples, but there's also going to be this group that listens to the disciples, this group that responds and keeps the word, right? Because there were people that Jesus spoke to, unbelievers that he spoke to, who were radically changed by his speaking, radically changed by his teaching, right? Zacchaeus comes to mind, right? Here's a guy who was experiencing all kinds of prosperity, and Jesus comes to town, 
And he wants to meet with this individual, and, and he does, and he goes to, goes to lunch with him at his house, and we don't know what happens in that conversation. We don't know what Jesus said. You know, is it a similar conversation that he had with uh, the woman at the well? That, hey, you're drinking from the wrong well. You're going you're gonna to continue to be thirsty. You can steal as much money as you want from your friends and family members and, and associates, but you're going to always be thirsty for more. Something happens in there where, where Zacchaeus comes out and his, his mind is blown about how to handle his finances. He starts giving everything away and he's following Jesus, right? So not everybody hated Jesus. Not everybody rejected Jesus. Not everybody was offended at Jesus. Many were convicted and challenged and changed through repentance because of what Jesus said. And he tells us that'll be true for us too. Some are gonna hate you, some are gonna persecute you, but some are gonna listen to you and some are gonna keep my word that, that, that principle is seen in Proverbs chapter 16. Verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. There's going to be times where we live out our faith radically, faithfully, and we're not hated. We're respected in some ways. Um, disagreed with, but tolerated um, because of how we're doing it, right? And I, I think Ben maybe made a mention in their group that there, there's certainly not this mindset that we need to try to be hated by people because we're Christians, right? Because some of us could be probably very good at that, right? Like, like you're saying, hey, I'm not really hated by anybody. I could probably change that by next week, right? Like I could probably be really uh, bold and arrogant and... Uh, create a lot of friction if I wanted to, to where I could come back next week and say, man, talk about the week I had, right? Persecution all over the place, right? But that's, that's not the case either. Like th- there should be the result that sometimes people look at you and say, you know what, I'm gonna be at peace with you because I, I respect what you're doing. I don't, I don't agree with it. I don't wanna do it. But the way that you're doing it in humility at least allows there to be peace. Now others are gonna be so offended because of their conviction, they're gonna, they're gonna react differently. But again, it's not an every, every case being the same type of a situation. Sometimes people listen to us, Jesus says. But we aren't exempt from mistreatment because we aren't greater than Jesus. Number four, we receive mistreatment due to the world's guilt of rejecting God. This too reminds us what it is that should be causing the hatred. It's not our attitude. It's not our personality. It's the fact that we are living out what God has called us to live out. Because Jesus says, verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Right? Jesus is, is helping them to see that the, the, the true object of hatred, the true object of persecution is him and not the actual disciples. That it's based off of um, their actions being tied to Jesus and not so much their personality or their attitude. And that's where we have to be careful that we are not supposed to generate hatred on account of our name, that it's because we're aligned with Jesus and what Jesus calls us to be, right? We receive mistreatment due to the world's guilt of rejecting God. The world's hatred is due to our identification with Jesus. The problem is with Jesus not with us. First Samuel 8, this is when Samuel is experiencing the kickback from 
the nation of Israel where they are wanting a king, right? And, and Samuel's kind of been their leader as, as, a, as a prophet and a priest, and, and there's some feelings of rejection on his part, right? And, and, and God steps in, and what does he say? He says, Samuel, this, is, this isn't about you. This is, this, is, this is something that the people have against me, right? So he encourages them and says, look, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, and the rejection is not about you. They are rejecting me, right? And so that's what Jesus illustrates here too, is that the rejection should be because of our alignment with Jesus and not something specific that we are doing in and of ourselves. The world's hatred flows from misguided knowledge, right? They... Um, They've been exposed to things, but they're responding in the inappropriate way to those things. Um, Jesus says that um, if I had not come and spoke to them, verse 22, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. All right, so what is he saying here? He's saying that, not that they were on their way to heaven if he doesn't show up, right? But by showing up, he has increased their guilt, right? Romans 2 talks about the, the different levels of accountability as far as what you've been exposed to. If you've been exposed to the law, you'll be held accountable to the law. If you haven't been exposed to the law, you'll be, exposed, you'll be accountable to the law written on your hearts, which you've also disobeyed, right? He's saying that I have increased their guilt, by showing up and saying things that they hadn't heard previously, doing things that they hadn't seen previously, and them rejecting that, right? So he has increased the guilt of these people who have rejected him because he's given them greater accountability. They now have more knowledge that they should be responding to, and they are choosing not to. There's, there's hatred that flows from misguided knowledge. The world is now without excuse because they have heard, seen, and rejected the truth. His words and his works have demonstrated how sinful they are, and they hate him for that. And lastly, number five, we receive mistreatment as a fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus is going to tell us, hey, be prepared for this because I've just told you this, but there's also this echo from even the Old Testament that tells us hatred is to come to those who follow Jesus. He says in verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. He's quoting from Psalm 69.4. Scripture's full of passages that tell us to expect the less than prosperous life that's promised in the prosperity gospel. Um, 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us to expect persecution. Philippians 1.29 tells us to expect suffering. 1 Thessalonians 3.3-4 3, 3 tells us to expect affliction. 1 Peter 4.12-13 tells us to expect trials. Jesus, what he's telling us here, as it plays out, is simply a fulfillment of Scripture, that, that persecution and hatred will come to those who follow Jesus. Now, that's from, from the expectation standpoint. We should expect persecution. Number two, we should respond by executing the commission, the Great Commission, in spite of persecution, because you now have the Holy Spirit. We are called to execute the commission. We are called to proclaim Jesus, to make disciples no matter what it costs us, right? So if it, if it costs us kickback and rejection here in the U.S., if it costs us our life in North Korea, we are called to proclaim Jesus and to stand with Jesus no matter the cost. 
Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. What's he saying? He's saying, look, hatred's gonna come your way and everything inside of you is gonna say, oh, I need to stop doing that then. Right, like if, I, if I'm not allowed to do that, even though Jesus has called me to do that, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have to stop doing that. Right? And some of us may be tempted to do that because it might cost us our job or it might cost us a relationship, it might cost us a family member. Those are the types of persecutions that we need to be willing to expect and accept. Right? Because we may not ever put ourselves in a position where it's going to cost us our life. But I certainly wouldn't want to stand before God and say, you know what, I didn't do that because I thought it might cost me my job. Or it might cost me a family member. Or it might cost me a relationship with somebody outside my family. Because there are people today that will stand with Jesus and it will cost them their life. And it would be far easier to just step back and say, okay, I'll do it your way for right now. I'm still a believer, but... You know, not everybody has to know that right now, right? We have to be willing to expect it and then to continue moving forward with the Great Commission versus shrinking back. Because the Holy Spirit's with us. For our kids, we need to tell others about Jesus even if we're hated for it. Number one, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness about Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to empower us to tell truth which means we are honest about sin. Whatever God calls sin, we call sin. Whatever God calls sin, we call sin. And that will, that will bring about friction at times. That will bring about persecution in the broader sense at times. And it's conformity for us to put ourselves in situation after situation after situation where sin is occurring and not speak up about it. We're conforming to the world. We're allowing behavior and attitude and action to, to be tolerated. And by not speaking up against it, we are portraying an acceptance of it. And we're called to bear witness about Jesus. And he tells us this in the context of, and you'll probably be hated for it. Number two, we're called to bear witness about Jesus even if it brings persecution. So we're called to do it because we're empowered to do it. We are capable of doing this because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He gives us the ability to speak truth. And when we don't know the truth to speak, he brings it to our remembrance. We've already seen that. But we're called to do this even if it brings persecution. Execute the commission in spite of persecution because you have the Holy Spirit. Move forward. Number three, endure persecution because you've been warned. Don't fall away. Endure persecution because you've been warned. Don't fall away. In chapter 16, he says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Right? The whole reason he's gone into this is because he wants to give his disciples the ammunition needed to push back against the hatred, to keep moving forward, to not fall away. Because everything inside of you is going to say, fall away. Right? Like, like if following Jesus means this, and there's an invasion upon our comfort, it's going to be very natural to say, oh, let's, 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 rem- let's, let's, with, let's remove 
let's remove whatever is causing the discomfort, right? Like that's our natural tendency. If something starts to cause discomfort towards us, we want that removed, we want that to go away, like stop causing me the discomfort. Whereas Jesus is saying here, you keep marching forward. Even if it causes greater discomfort, you keep marching forward as if the discomfort is tied to your alignment with me. If you're being hated for following Jesus, you keep marching forward. And he says, I'm telling you these things so that you don't fall away because you're going to be tempted to fall away. He says, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That misguided knowledge, right? Paul was guilty of that. As Saul, he's killing Christians and he thinks he's doing it in the name of Yahweh, right? (coughs) They're going to think they're offering service to God. They're completely misguided. Verse three, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. We should keep following Jesus even if we're hated for it, kids. Number one, Jesus communicates expectations about persecution to keep us believing in him. Listen, the greatest danger in persecution is not personal loss, harm, or even death, but falling away. We saw that theme throughout the book of Revelation, right? When we saw the hostility of the world against the church and the persecution, we kept saying time and time again, the greatest danger to a Christian is not personal loss, it's not harm, and it's not physical death. It's falling away. We see that in the book of Hebrews. Right? We can't walk away from the very thing that gives us life. We can't walk away from the vine. We can't disconnect as a branch and say, hey, this is painful. The pruning hurts. I got to come over here and find some relief because we've cut ourselves off and we die. Right? Like We keep moving forward. We don't fall away. He's given us this communication to keep us believing in him. And then number two, he's expecting us to remember his words when the persecution comes so that we respond rightly. He wants us to remember this. He wants us to remember this. A couple other passages where Jesus talks on persecution with his disciples. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, right? The prosperity gospel works if you talk about prosperity being tied to heaven and not here, right? Because that is a guarantee every single time, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted, not here, but in heaven, right? The prosperity comes in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one time, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Right? There's this expectation here that Jesus says, keep doing what's right. And if you need to move to a different location, go do that. 
right? But keep doing what's right. Endure the suffering. Matthew chapter 23, verse 34. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Right? Jesus is talking from the other side here and tells the, 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 the unbelievers this is what's going to happen, and you're going to kill these people, and you're going to be guilty of it. In Acts chapter 5, when we start to see some of these coming to fruition for Jesus' disciples, we see their response. In verse 40, And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's when you know your joy has reached the fullest extent, when you can be joyful in the midst of persecution. Because Jesus says, that's what comes. You abide in me, you're bearing fruit, you will experience unbelievable joy, right? And the world's joy is offered to us if we have stuff. If we have relationships, if we have things, if we have money, then we ought to be joyful. Jesus offers a joy that can't be stripped when everything is taken from us. And we are being beaten for our alignment with Jesus. You got people leaving saying, my joy is full, I counted a privilege to be treated in the way that my Messiah was treated. Three, three truths that I want you to take from this. Number one, persecution or lack thereof may be proportionate to the extent of one's identification with Christ. Our persecution or our lack thereof may be proportionate to the extent of one's identification with Christ. Meaning, the more we identify with Christ, the more we should expect persecution to come. Again, it may never reach the level of death in this country even if we were as close to being perfectly aligned with Jesus as we could be. It just may not happen in the way that things are set up in this country. But we will certainly experience more persecution than we currently do today. Right now, you as an individual will experience more persecution as you take greater steps to align yourself with Christ. Right? In the same ways that the more you commit to, to uh, reading and studying and applying, your sanctification will grow. And the more you do those things, you should expect your persecution will grow as, to, as well. The hatred will increase. Again, maybe not to the extent of you dying for it, but certainly to the extent that Dallas talked about where you will experience more opposition, more pushback for the choices that you're making. Number two, we can't allow our desire to be accepted by men to cause us to withdraw from Jesus, right? We can't allow our desire to be accepted by others to cause us to withdraw from Jesus, to change what we know we should be doing because we're fearful of the consequences of it. And then lastly, number three, we don't seek out ways to be hated, Instead, we seek out ways to further identify with Christ in love and obedience. And if the hatred comes, it comes. Our job is to be identified with Christ. Our goal is not to find ways to be hated. 
And then lastly, three application questions for you to think through as we leave today. Number one, is there any persecution that I'm currently experiencing? And am I responding with joy and endurance appropriately? Is there any persecution that I'm currently experiencing? And, and uh, it should be, and am I responding, not I am. Is there any persecution that I am currently experiencing? And am I responding with joy and endurance appropriately? Whatever the, the form of persecution that comes our way, we are called to respond with joy and endurance in it. Number two, is there any conformity in my life that would give this world reason to love me rather than to hate me? Is my lack of persecution due to my unwillingness to separate from this world, right? We've been chosen and called out from it, and Jesus says that's why you're hated. But if we start to seep back into conforming to this world, that hatred level is going to go back down. We're not, we're not being offensive. We're not, we're not being different, right? So is there any conformity in my life that would give this world reason to love me rather than hate me? Because Jesus says, if you're of the world, well, you should expect it to love you. It's when you're not of the world that the hatred comes. And then lastly, number three, do I have adequate knowledge of the Bible's teachings on persecution to recall it in a moment's notice when experiencing it? Because what does Jesus say? He says, I've told you this so that you'll know it and remember it when persecution comes so that you won't fall away, right? So we talk about memorizing Scripture, knowing Scripture, it's not to, to pass a test or to make a grade or to fill our heads with knowledge, right? It's to be able to recall it in a moment's notice when life is pressing in on us that we're able to know what Scripture has to say about it so that we can say, this is what I'm going to do because this is what the Bible says. The, the speaker last night, Danny Aiken, talked about this, that when, we're, when our minds are being transformed, anything and everything that comes our way, we filter it through what God's Word says and, and we know what to do. Right? What did Jesus tell me to do with this? Well, he told me to do this. Well, I need to do this, then I need to respond this way. So Jesus says, I've told you these things so you don't fall away, so that you respond appropriately when persecution shows up. That means we have a responsibility to evaluate what do, what do I think scripture, what do I know scripture teaches about persecution? What does it have to say about trials? What am I supposed to do when they come? Right? We've read Multiple passages, and I've given you multiple passages today that all speak about these things. Do you know what Scripture says about persecution so that you can recall it in a moment's notice and know how to respond when experiencing it? Our family worship questions for this week. One, what are some ways we might experience persecution here in the U.S. even if our lives aren't necessarily in danger? What should our response be? And then number two, Spend some time together this week praying for the persecuted Christians around the world that they would remain encouraged and would faithfully endure those sufferings. I don't know how accurate the numbers are. I tried to get accurate numbers, and numbers were all over the place. Um, but the, the ones that I trust most estimate that between four to 8,000 Christians are killed yearly for their faith. Four to 8,000. 111 countries are hostile towards Christianity. 100 million are being persecuted. In North Korea alone, there's an estimate that there's 50 to 70,000 
that are in detention camps today. As we hear those things, as we see those things, it ought to cause us to be thankful for where we live in the unique setting that we, we have. It should not cause us to be guilty or feel guilty, but it should cause us to pause and say, what is my level of identification with Christ? Am I experiencing persecution that I should be experiencing in the setting that I'm in? But it should absolutely result in sympathy towards those who are our brothers and sisters who need our prayers, that they will respond appropriately because their pressures are far greater than maybe what we experience here. Therefore, their call to endure is going to be far tougher, right, as those pressures uh, continue to be applied. So uh, I'm going to close this in prayer, and we're going to pray specifically for that as Tyson comes to, to lead us in a closing song. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that, that Jesus saw fit to, uh, to warn us and to prepare us for the hostility of this world. Uh, Lord, we're thankful that you sent Jesus to model what it looks like to be persecuted and what it looks like to respond to that persecution. We're thankful that Jesus could, could hang on the cross and could pray for his enemies. God, I pray that we would see those responses by Jesus and that we would model those in our own life. God, I pray that we would seek to be identified with you, to abide in you in such a way that if need be, the world would hate us for it. God, help us not to go looking for ways to be hated. Help us to go looking for ways to to be more aligned with you, to love you better, to love others better, to be obedient to you more fully, and to expect that when we do those things, we're going to get kicked back. And God, help us not to grow discouraged with the kickback. Instead, Father, I pray that we would endure, we would press on, we would continue to execute the commission because the Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers us to do so. Lord, I pray that we would faithfully examine our lives to see if there's any conformity. Is there anything that we're tolerating in our life, tolerating in the lives of others around us that would give reason for the world to love us because they believe that we are part of it? Instead, God, I pray that we would be called out because you've chosen us to be different. To be different. And God, help us to know what your word has to say about persecution so that when it comes, we can recall those teachings, those words from you in a moment's notice, apply them to our situation, and respond as the apostles did as they left their own beating, rejoicing that they could be chosen to be treated just like you were. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.